version of yourself? Well, probably not. I know I'm not, but would you like to be the best version of yourself? Sure. I think we can all vote for that. Well, my special guest this week spends as much time as anyone on earth today helping as many people as possible discover how to become their best selves. And he does it by promoting habits, atomic habits. No less, have you read James Clear's book by that name? Well, you should, but even if you haven't yet, you're going to learn a lot more about how to become a better self. Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Well, assuming you were listening to the first 30 seconds of the show, you know exactly where we're headed this week. I'm delighted shortly to be joined by James Clear, the author of the book Atomic Habits, a book I've greatly enjoyed. And whether or not you've read it, A, I think you would enjoy it. B, I hope you will read it. But C, I can guarantee you a good time, a thoughtful and reflective time this week. James Clear is a personal development keynote speaker. He's the New York Times bestselling author of Atomic Habits. His entertaining talks teach audiences about small habits, about decision-making, and continuous improvement. James and I will run the gamut from the four laws of behavior change to entrepreneurism, how he invests a lot of delights all the way through. I'm really delighted to bring you a new friend to The Motley Fool, James Clear. Well, probably the most moving part of your book, James, I think one of the better introductions of any book I've ever read is your introduction. You entitle it, My Story. And I want to start there. So, Typically, the first question I like to ask each of the superheroes who joins me here on Rule Breaker Investing is, what is your superhero origin story? What is the mutation that shaped you as a younger person? Where'd you come from? I realize there's no way to abridge your story and truly do it justice, but James, I'm still going to ask you to try. What is your superhero origin story? Thank you. Yeah, well, it's uh, great to talk to you and nice to to do this uh, together. Before I was born, my dad played professional baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals, played in the minor leagues for them. And growing up, baseball, many sports were a big part of kind of my uh, origin story in my childhood. And I played a variety of things, um, including baseball, until my sophomore year of high school when I suffered a very serious injury and I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. And it was an accident. A classmate of mine took a swing, bat slipped out of his hands and kind of struck me right between the eyes. Uh, broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, which is called your ethmoid bone, so fairly deep inside your skull, shattered both eye sockets. Um, I, you know, with the help of some teachers and friends, stumbled back down into school and went to the nurse's office. They started to answer, uh, ask me questions, which I didn't answer very well. Uh, I had to be taken out of the high school on a stretcher, an ambulance, the local hospital. Once I got there, I started to struggle with basic functions like swallowing, breathing, lost the ability to breathe on my own. Uh, I had a seizure. I ended up having three more over the next uh, 24 hours. Uh, Eventually, I had to be air care to a larger hospital, which was like more equipped to handle the situation. As I was getting ready to undergo surgery, I had another seizure. So the doctors decided to to place me into a medically induced coma. And um, the process of recovering from that was really the first time that my hand was forced to focus on small habits. And that's kind of where it you know, comes back into the work that I've done, the writing and Atomic Habits and connects to that. The next, I couldn't drive a car for the next nine months. Um, I, my first physical therapy session, I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line. I had double vision for weeks. Um, and eventually, once I recovered a little bit and got out of the hospital and finished physical therapy, all I wanted to do was get back on the baseball field. But my return to baseball was not smooth. You know, I, I ended up being the only... Uh, junior that was cut from the team the next year. And I had to focus on really small habits, stuff that almost seems like insignificant to mention now, you know, like went to bed at the same hour each night, prepared for class for an hour each day. After physical therapy, this was the first time in my life when I started strength training consistently at first once or twice a week, and then three or four times. And individually, those habits seem like very small things, but collectively, they gave me a sense of control over my life again, a sense that I felt like I had lost. And so that period, um, in that sense, it kind of was my first introduction to small habits and behavior change in, uh, as a practitioner. And then it was only a couple of years later 
once my baseball career, I ended up playing in college uh, and having a good career there. So I was able to recover and bounce back to a certain degree. Um, and I studied biomechanics. So I was a science guy, mostly chemistry and physics. And then right. uh, I went to graduate school and got my MBA and studied in the Center for Entrepreneurship, which sort of sparked my desire, kind of got this itch going in me to start my own thing, which I did after I graduated. And it was only then during those years and in the kind of intervening years that followed as I built my business and started writing about habits that I became more familiar with the science behind them and how they work and kind of had a more structured description for what was going on. And ultimately that culminated in the writing of Atomic Habits. But at the time when I was going through this as an athlete, I wouldn't have used necessarily that language. I was just experiencing it. So I've in the long run, you know, I, I see it as a benefit. It was a big learning experience for me, and I was able to um, learn a lot about myself, uh, learn a lot about what it takes to change behavior, bounce back from things, overcome challenges, et cetera. But uh, it's now kind of the merger of both the practice of those ideas and the uh, study and science of them as a writer that ultimately is kind of developed into the, the work I do at jamesgreer.com and the, the book that I wrote with Atomic Habits. Mm. And James, it, it is an incredible story, and you tell it so well. You did a nice job summarizing it here, but of course, uh, some readers like to skip introductions. I would certainly suggest anybody inspired by this interview who picks up Atomic Habits, if they haven't already read it, make sure you don't skip James's introduction. I know you graduated from Denison University. Uh, go Big Red! That's right. Very proud uh, alum. I love Denison and uh, really, yeah, I just have very fond memories of my time there. I think it was one of the best decisions of my life to, to go there. That's wonderful. And James, what what year were you a graduate? Yep. I was at Denison from 2004, 2008, and then I went to graduate school at Ohio State from in 2008, 2000, or, uh, sorry, 2009, 2010. Um, and then I started my business in September of 2010. Wow. Uh, fumbled around for two years, tried a bunch of business ideas that didn't work. And then I began writing at jamesclear.com in November of 2012. And so it's really been the last eight years or so that I've built up the audience there and, and done the work that I, I'm doing now. Which is amazing. And, what, and it's a classic demonstration of all of your principles of being resilient and being regular. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. I definitely want to hear from James Clear, the entrepreneur. But our focus initially is, of course, on your wonderful book, Atomic Habits, uh, written in 2018. And I, I want to quote you briefly and just have you reflect on habits. So you say early on in the book, quote, becoming the best version of yourself, which, by the way, parenthetically, I, I think we're all trying to be. So becoming the best version of yourself requires you to continuously edit your beliefs to upgrade and expand your identity. And then a little later, and habits are the path to changing your identity, the most practical way to change who you are is to change what you do. James, is that something that you knew all along since that horrific incident in 10th grade, or did you discover that some later time? Well, I mean, maybe uh, I knew it implicitly. I, I guess I hope that we know it implicitly. Most of what I write, when people read it, what I want it to feel like is, yeah, that resonates. That, that feels like that feels like what I've experienced in my life. You know, I think that's the ultimate test of an idea is does it hold up in the real world? You know, like there are a lot of very beautiful theories, but uh, do they actually hold water in practice? So, so to a certain degree, I feel like, yeah, I, I understood it. Um, I didn't put it into words until relatively recently, but this core idea that you're getting at the passage that that is, that section is from is around this concept that I call identity-based habits. And this idea that, your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Every time you do one push-up, you embody the identity of someone who doesn't miss workouts. Every time you write one sentence, you embody the identity of a writer. And ultimately, true behavior change is really identity change. You know, like ultimately, that's what we're trying to get to. The goal is not necessarily to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to read a book. The goal is to become a reader. Mm. The goal is not to do a silent meditation retreat. The goal is to become a meditator. And I think that once, you, when you talk to people who've been through transformations, they say things kind of like that, where they'll say like, yeah, I used to have to force myself to get into the gym, but now I can't imagine not exercising. Or uh, it used to take a lot of effort for me to meditate every day, but now like it's just part of what I do. 
And so what you're seeing there is it's been integrated into their lifestyle. It's part of how they define themselves now. And um, identity-based habits sort of get at that idea. They get at this idea that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And that, I think, is the real reason, the true reason, the deeper reason habits matter so much. We often talk about habits as being the pathway to external results. Oh, they'll help you make more money or reduce stress or lose weight. And if it's true, they can do all those things, which is great. But the real reason that habits matter is they provide evidence of who you are. And so, you know, no, doing one push up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, reading one page does not make you a brilliant genius, but it does cast a vote for I invest in my own learning or I'm a reader. And ultimately, I think it's the building up of that body of evidence that habits provide that gives you something new to root your self-image in. It gives you a new way to look at yourself. And so that, that line that you read, that growth requires us to continuously update and expand and upgrade our beliefs, um, that's really what that's about. It's like, look, if you update your habits, then you will update the way that you look at yourself because they provide evidence of all that. So I think there's a kind of a deep connection there with the story we tell ourselves and the behaviors that we take. And my argument is that we should let the behaviors lead the way. We should start mm. with small habits and let that reinforce the type of person we want to be. And it is a wonderful way of framing things that identity-based, as you, as you said, James. You know, I think back to the first time I read a book that was kind of about habits uh, and somebody who's been on The Motley Fool interviewed before, Charles Duhigg. I know you oh, yeah. know of Charles, the New York Times writer. He wrote a great book. It was 2012, somewhere right around maybe when you started blogging, it sounds mm -hmm. like, James. But Charles wrote a book, which certainly we'd recommend about, and it's it's a little bit more a journalistic kind of the science behind habit, yeah. um, whereas I think your book really takes it and makes it personal for in a way that Charles wasn't necessarily aiming for. Well, that actually, I have the great benefit of his book had already been written. And so, you know, I could read it. And I, I one of the things I did when I was working on Atomic Habits is I went to Amazon and looked at all the three-star reviews for Power of Habit because those were all people who liked it, but then they felt like something was missing. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, Duhigg is a journalist. And so his goal was more to describe what a habit is and how it forms and like the phenomena of habits. And um, a lot of those three-star reviews said, you know, great book, really well written, but I wish it told me how to put it into practice. And so that was the gap that I thought, okay, I can do that. I can try to fill that. And so my my approach was I wanted Atomic Habits to be like the most comprehensive guide on what a habit is and how it works. But most importantly, how do I implement this? How do I apply it to my, yeah, my daily life? Exactly. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so he, I thought he did a great job with the book. And uh, I'll tell you, after finishing a book, you have even more respect for anybody who has written <laughs> the book. So I, uh, I remember after finishing writing mine thinking, yeah, he did a really nice job. I'm sure that took a ton of work. That's great. I want to focus next on, we've talked about the habits part. I think we need to talk about the atomic part. Now, one of the truisms of most business and kind of cultural books is if you read the subtitle, you can maybe often grasp more quickly what's going on than just the title itself. And if I remember, I'm not looking at your book cover right now, James, but if I remember, I think it's Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results. So atomic, tiny, could you please explain? So I chose the word atomic for three reasons. Uh, so there's kind of like three different meanings. The first meaning of the word atomic is what you're referencing, tiny or small, like an atom. And that is a core part of my philosophy. I think habits should be small and easy to do. The second meaning of the word atomic is the fundamental unit in a larger system. So like atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds and so on. And your habits are kind of like that. They're like these little units in your daily system, your daily routine. And you put them all together and you end up with what your normal lifestyle kind of looks like. And then the third and final meaning is the source of immense energy or power. And so if you can uh, understand all three of those meanings, I think you see the narrative arc of the book, which is we're going to make changes that are small and easy to do. And we're going to layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system. And if you can do that, when you put it all together, you're going to get some really powerful or remarkable results in the process. And so I, in that sense, I kind of got lucky. I feel like Atomic uh, encapsulates not only the idea of starting small and building, getting 1% better each day, but also another one of the core ideas of the book is that 
um, you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. And so we want we want to build a system of small changes that is kind of inevitably taking us toward this desired destination. And uh, you get some really powerful outcomes if you do that. So, so I really like the word for for all three of those reasons. Love it, and yeah, uh, and we, I love as a as an English major myself. I love it when I'm talking to a writer, somebody who loves the language, somebody who's written a lot more than I have over the months and years. Thinking about your blog, um, and and James, for you to have the triple meaning uh, really connects well with me. I know a lot of people listening to us right now. Um, fractals is one of my favorite concepts Ooh. from science that. Um, that as an English major, I don't often rock, but this idea that a small piece of something is emblematic or demonstrative right. of that thing. And and that's that's what's going on here. I love how I you- kind of lose that fractal nature to habits. It's like, um, if you can win the moment, then that helps you win the hour. And if you can win the hour, that helps you win the day. And if you can win the day, then you can kind of win the decade. And um, it all comes down to mastering that habit in the moment. It, love it comes it. down to you know making that small 1% improvement now. And then repeating that choice again and again, and you'd be surprised how far it can take you. Yeah. Quick side note: Have you ever read the book Thinking in Systems? Yes, uh, it's great. Um, Danella Meadows, and yeah. she she has a couple different. In addition to that book, I think she has an article that's called um, "Places to Intervene in a System," and it gives like eleven different ways to do that. I read that, and it was it was very informative as I was working on Atomic Habits and kind of thinking. The problem with human behavior, and which you, you know well, and anybody who uh, deals with the market and trading and all the, the human behaviors that come out of that uh, know implicitly, is so complex. It's such a complex system that nobody can understand what is going to happen for sure on any given day or moment. And so uh, Danella Meadows' approaches to complex systems thinking and dealing with that uncertainty and where to intervene in a complex system all of that is useful, not just for thinking about some of the ones that she thought about, but also for as I was working on human behavior and behavior change and so on. So that's, anyway, that's yeah, great. great, great book as well. I'm not surprised you'd read her work, but because um, it fits so well with systems and processes. I'm a very process driven person myself. That's why I love stuff like her work and your work, James, and somebody else that I've had before on this podcast. And I know you're aware of this person as well as David Allen and oh, his yeah. getting things done work. And whether it's the two minute rule, which you speak to in your book, but I, I'm thinking in particular here, stick, sticking with Atomic, one of David Allen's great concepts is this concept of small wins, of, mm. of, of just having a small task and doing it and then feeling a sense of energy that you've succeeded at it. And so it gives you a momentum behind what you're doing, a small win. And you speak to that in your book. You say, and I quote, it's a simple two-step process going back to identity, right? One, decide the type of person you want to be. Two, prove it to yourself with small wins. Yeah, the... Um... I think we all know this uh, implicitly from our experience that momentum is a powerful thing. It kind of feels like you either got yourself in this upward spiral or this downward spiral. And when you're on a downward spiral or when you're locked in a holding pattern, you kind of feel like you're, you're stagnant. Um, you need something to create a foothold that can stop the, the negative momentum and give you something to push off of and kind of get the things going in the right direction again. And uh, a small win is basically that, you know, it's like it gives you a foothold and you can use that as a little bit of leverage to step up to the next level. And then you can use that to continue the process. And um, the the action of winning by one percent each day or by making some small win, it's not that intimidating on any given day. It doesn't feel like that much. It's but man, it compound and add up. And uh, this idea that we're kind of looking at our habits as something that compounds over time. And the way to get that is by carving out these small wins each day. I think that can be a powerful way to think about behavior change. I love it. Well, we're about to go into your four laws of behavior change, and that'll be an important part of our discussion. But before we get there, since we're talking about kind of a day in the life, I wanted to ask you that question. So to the extent, James, that you can generalize about a typical day in your life, and, and I don't know how typical for you is one day to the next, but I at least assume you've got some consistent habits. So James Clear, can you talk us through a, a typical day in your life these days? Yeah, I guess I, broadly speaking, you know, there are always some exceptions, but broadly speaking, I kind of have two different versions of a day, a uh, day where I'm either at home is like one version or traveling is another. So um, the, the at home version, which is most days uh, throughout the year, um, I, I, I have a cardinal rule where I don't cheat myself on sleep. So I get usually eight hours, sometimes nine if I'm training heavy uh, in the gym or whatever. 
Um, and then I usually wake up, it really, I, I don't set an alarm, um, which is one of the great benefits of the job that I have is that I, I don't have to be anywhere at a particular time, usually. Um, so depending on when I go to sleep and what happened the day before, I usually wake up sometime between seven and nine. Um, and then uh, let's say I'm up at eight and I take a shower, I get a glass of water and um, I go, I have a home office. I walk to my office, like 10 second commute. And, um, and then I start working right away. And the, one of the habits that I have is that I keep my phone in another room until lunch each day. So that gives me a block of three to four hours where I get to work on my agenda rather than responding to everybody else's agenda or whatever happens to come into my inbox or whatever. Um, and so that morning time is more like kind of sacred thinking time. That's usually when I'm reading a lot or I'm writing a lot. Right now I'm kind of, you know, working on a new manuscript. So I'm putting ideas together and, and whatnot. So that's usually when a lot of that deeper thinking happens. Then I have lunch uh, around noon. That's also usually my first meal of the day. Um, so I do intermittent fasting or have been doing it for eight or nine years now. Um, so usually that means my first meal is around noon. Um, and then in the afternoon is when I do interviews like this or calls with my team or my agent or whoever I need to be talking to at the time. Um, and that typically goes till about five. And then uh, my wife comes home from work and we go to the gym. And so that's when I get my workout in. That's again, kind of like a sacred space where I shut everything off. Like I don't have to think about anything else. I can just work out and be with her. Mm. and um come back eat dinner so usually from like five to nine is pretty much blocked off and then i often get like a second wind around like nine or nine thirty where i'm like well maybe i'll just answer a couple emails and of course it's like never just a few right <laughs> it's like eleven o'clock and you're still working but um so i'll either do that or we'll be you know watching the wire or the sopranos or something like that yeah. um and then uh, and then the next day it kind of starts over again so that's that's usually what it looks like broad broad strokes yeah. Um, I'm reading constantly throughout the day. So probably the, the main habits that are part of my daily routine would be, uh, the intermittent fasting, the kind of carving out the deep thinking time in the morning, leaving my phone in another room, um, reading often, and then the exercise routine in the evening. That That's probably, those are probably like the four or five big chunks that I come back to again and again. That's awesome. I love James hearing your own habits. Um, and, and what an exemplar you are for so many people. I, I know there's a whole separate part of you, we won't prolong this, that travels. But, you know, we do have a lot of listeners who travel now. Not many people are traveling right now. But once we start traveling again, do you have one or two tips uh, to exemplify good travel, good habits you have in travel? Yeah, um, I do. I, I, don't, I don't know that I have great travel habits, but I do have a couple of thoughts and ideas. Um, one is, and this is not unique to me, many people will say, oh, working on a plane is one of the best places for me to work uh, because they don't feel like they either don't want to buy internet or that plane doesn't have internet or whatever. And so they just use that time to read or to write or to work on things without getting interrupted digitally. And so that is a good like kind of little focused zone. And um, I have a writing playlist that I have on my phone and it, it doesn't have any words, just, you know, instrumental music. And I will say, when I get on a plane and I sit in my seat and I put those headphones on and I press play on that playlist, I get into a zone where I'm like, yeah, this is what happens when I write. And I almost always have a good session uh, when I do that. So, so that's one little tip. And then the second one, and this is anybody who travels often will know this, it's hard to build, well, this is actually a bigger principle about habits in general, which is habits, it is impossible to have a habit outside of an environment. Right? All of our lives occur within a particular context. You're always moving from one environment to the next. And so your behaviors, your habits get tied to a particular place. They get tied to a location. You know, your couch at 7 p.m. might be where you have the habit of watching Netflix or the coffee shop across the street from your office is where you have the habit of browsing Twitter or scrolling social media or whatever. So um, the problem for with people who travel a lot is they're always switching contexts. They're always changing environments. And so it becomes hard to stick to habits because you're always switching things up. So my other tip for travelers is focus on a part of the experience that is the same, even if the location is different. So for example, uh, you could have a habit that's like, after I check in at the hotel, I say one thing I'm grateful for that happened today. And so you don't know which hotel it will be or what city you'll be in, but you do know you'll be checking in. And that's a signal or trigger to a cue to start your gratitude habit. Or 
after I uh, put my luggage on the bed or after I put my luggage on the luggage rack in the room, I do 10 burpees or I do 15 pushups or whatever it is. And so now that action, again, you don't know which room or which hotel, but you know that you'll be doing that and you can use that as the cue for the habit. So if you can find parts of your travel process that are stable, you can use those as reliable cues for new habits, even if the context or location is changing. Love it. All right, James. Well, before we move to the four laws of behavior change, you've definitely aroused my curiosity. What are one or two tracks or artists you would recommend for writers for their listening playlist? Uh, well, it obviously depends on what you want to listen to. I prefer to work to things that don't have words in them. So sure. uh, there's a song called um, Data, D-A-T-T-A. Uh, it's by an artist called Solon, and it's just kind of like a moody, slow, instrumental. I, that's usually the song that I kick the playlist off with. And then there's a great, there's a whole, it's this Italian artist, I believe, uh, Ludovico, uh, I'm trying to look it up right now, Ludovico Ainadi, E-I-N-A-U-D-I. And uh, anyway, he has this whole like very epic uh, album um, (laughs) that is, yeah, like usually gets me in this like writing mindset. Love it. Those are two to to dig into and check out. Definitely going to add that to my playlist. Thank you, sir. All right. So, so the heart of your book and, and perhaps the heart of our interview is just your four laws of behavior change. I'll, I'll spoiler alert right away for anybody who hasn't yet read Atomic Habits. We're going to be talking about making it obvious, making it attractive, making it easy, and making it satisfying. So for each of these, James, since we have you with us, I'd love maybe an example and a little coaching around each of these. Now, I've already heard you for the first one, make it obvious. I've already heard you speak a little bit. You talk about doing a few push-ups as soon as you get that hotel room or open up your luggage. That sounds like habit stacking to me. But could you talk us through that first law of behavior change, make it obvious? Sure. So uh, first I should say, you know, roughly speaking, you sort of want those four things to happen if you're trying to build a good habit. Now you don't always need all four, but I think the way to think about it is they're kind of like levers you can pull. And different levers are better for different situations or different tools are better for different situations. And the more of those four that you have working at the same time, the more likely it is you're going to stick with a habit. So it's kind of like we're trying to put the odds in your favor, basically, with those core things. So as you mentioned, that first law of the first law of behavior change is to make it obvious. And the idea is that the more obvious, available, visible, easy to see that a habit is, that the cue of that habit is, the more likely you are to stick with it. So um, let me give you like a, an example for like my reading habits. So, uh, right next to me on the desk here, I have like five or six books sitting, sitting next to me. I got a little stack here so I can, you know, reach them at any time. If you open up my phone, uh, when I first started building a reading habit, I took audible and I put it right in the, um, the home bar at the bottom of the phone. So it was the first yeah. thing I see when I opened it up. And then there's also an app called Pocket that lets you save articles online and read them for later, similar to Instapaper and some of these other ones. And um, I put that right next to Audible. And so first thing I see when I open up my phone is a, a prompt uh, to read. And then I also usually, when I'm spending time on the computer, most of that time is spent in the browser. And I ha- typically have between like 10 and 20 tabs on my on my browser at any time. And, uh, Usually like two or three of them have to do with work, Gmail or Asana or whatever, some stuff like that. But the other 10 or so are almost always articles that I'm either in the middle of reading or I want to read soon. And so my point is the act of reading is very obvious in all of my environments. It's it's around me in my physical environment, next to me on the desk. I have some next to the end table by my bed. I've got a few in the living room. Um, it's next, it's in my digital environment. It's like all those tabs that are on the screen or things that I want to read. And it's the, the first app that I see when I open up the phone and all of that, those are all ideas for making it obvious. And the, what ends up happening is that I had someone ask me once, what's the one thing that you think every person in the world could get better at? And I don't know if it's a good answer or not, but what I ended up coming up with was allocating your attention. It's almost certain that not every person in the world is always allocating their attention in the highest and best way. And so what you're trying to do by making good habits obvious, whether it's all these reading examples I just gave or putting healthy food on the kitchen counter or putting the the task that's most important for you to accomplish on top of your keyboard when you leave work each day. So it's the first thing you see when you get there in the morning. Um, 
all of those strategies are trying to make it more likely that you allocate your attention to the to the thing that's productive. They make it so that when you get distracted with whatever tab you are on in your browser, you look around and you're like, oh, maybe I'll click on that. I was supposed to read an article. So you're just trying to increase the odds that you fall through and do the, the obvious actions, the more productive action. Yeah, love it. And that makes so much sense. And we're going to talk with the next one, I think, about your environment, because that's a big part of making it attractive. But before we bounce forward to making it attractive, let's just stick with make it obvious a little bit longer. Can you speak to habit stacking? Yeah, so this is an idea that uh, originally comes from B.J. Falk, who's a professor at Stanford, also writes about habits. He's got this whole, he calls it tiny habits methodology. And his structure for, for doing this is to come up with this, it's basically a sentence that you fill out, where you say, after I do my current habit, I will do a new habit. And uh, I like to refer to that strategy as habit stacking, because you're essentially stacking the new habit on top of an old one. Um, he refers to it as anchoring or tiny habits method or whatever, but the, the idea is the same. And so let's say, for example, that you want to build a habit of meditating and you already have a habit of making a cup of coffee in the morning. And so your habit stack might be something like, uh, when I wake up and make my morning cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds. Uh, or after I um, write down my to-do list for the day, I will meditate for 60 seconds or whatever it is. You're tying that new habit with the old one. And that connection makes it easier to remember when to do it. Um, there's also a strategy that I think is very similar to this, kind of has a bunch of, uh, it's got hundreds of studies kind of around it, which is called implementation intention. And the idea is you're just trying to state your intention to implement the behavior at a particular time. So if for those sentences, researchers have people fill things out like, uh, if you want to build an exercise habit, they fill out a sentence that says something like, I will partake uh, in at least 20 minutes of vigorous exercise on this day, at this time, in this place. So you're making it very clear when and where the habit's going to live. Very similar to, to the idea of tying the meditation habit to the, the coffee uh, habit. You, I think the core lesson for all of those strategies is that a lot of people feel like what they lack is motivation when what they really lack is clarity. Um, they, they think, oh, I need to wake up and I hope I feel uh, motivated to work out today or I hope I feel motivated to write today. But the truth is you just need to have a very clear, distinct line for when and where that habit's going to live. And that alone will increase the odds that you'll follow through. So anyway, all of those strategies give you a, a more obvious location for the habit to, to live. Wonderful. Now make it attractive. So at one point you say environment, I love this line, environment is the invisible hand that shapes human behavior. Um, I'm going to requote you again, another uh, few sentences I love. Environment design is powerful, not only because it influences how we engage with the world, but also because we rarely do it. Most people live in a world others have created for them, but you can alter the spaces where you live and work to increase your exposure to positive cues and reduce your exposure to negative ones, environment design allows you to take back control and become the architect of your life. You coach us, be the designer of your world and not merely the consumer of it, end quote. I think environment design is a powerful strategy. I talk about it in a couple different places in Atomic Habits. And you know, the, all the reading examples I just gave you, shifting the apps on the screen, shifting the location of the books, like the, those are all examples of environment design. And the, the core idea is to make the good habit the path of least resistance, to make the good habit the obvious thing, the easy thing to do, make it frictionless, simple, reduce the number of steps. And the more that you do that, the easier it is to find yourself living and operating in a way that's productive and effective. And, um, you know, there are a bunch of different examples. Like we could actually, we could also invert this and talk about breaking bad habits, which is uh, you want to increase the number of steps. And rather than making it obvious, you want to make the bad habits invisible. So take, for example, you know, you walk into, uh, a lot of people feel like they watch too much television. But if you walk into any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? Right? It's like, what is this room designed to get you to do? Everything is oriented towards TV. And so... There are a spectrum of choices that you could do. You could like take a chair and turn it away from the television, have it face a coffee table with a book on it. You could put the TV inside a wall unit or a cabinet so that it's behind doors. You're less likely to see it. 
You could also increase the friction of the task. So you could like unplug the TV after each use and only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So you can't just like turn on mindlessly and find something. But the key point here is that no single environment design choice like that is going to radically transform your life. But imagine the impact of making five or 10 or 20 or 50 choices like that. Now suddenly it becomes much easier to act in a productive and effective way because your environment's moving you that direction. So I think the way I like to summarize environment design is just to say, look, if you want to have it to be a big part of your life, make it a big part of your environment. You know, like so often we say things are important to us, but then you look around and like you're not surrounded by it. You're surrounded by a bunch of other stuff that's pulling you off course. So mm. try to design the, the environment to make the good habit obvious and easy to do and the path of least resistance. And, and in terms of attractive, James, could you give me maybe an example from your own life or your house or what you've done to make something more attractive? Again, the second law of behavior change. So uh, let's use a, a common example. Let's say that you're like, all right, I listen to this podcast, listen to this guy talk about habits. So you know, I'm going to set my alarm. Tomorrow's going to be the day. I'm going to wake up at six and I'm going to go for a run. And 6 a.m. rolls around and you're like, well, my bed is warm. It's cold outside. <laughs> I'll just press news instead. But if you rewind the clock and you come back to today and you text a friend and you say, hey, can we meet at the park at 6.15 and go for a run? Well, now 6 a.m. rolls around and your bed is still warm and it's still cold outside. But if you don't get up and go for a run, you're a jerk because you leave your friend at the park all alone. And so simultaneously what's happened is you've made it more attractive to get up and go for a run and less attractive to press snooze and sleep in. And this strategy, I'm going to make a choice in the present and text my friend and like set up a time to meet them that locks in my behavior in the future. Now I don't want to press snooze because there's a cost to the behavior. Scientists refer to that as a commitment device. And it's one of the strategies that I discussed in the book for, and it, it just kind of changes the calculus that's going on in your mind where you're like, oh, now it's more attractive to do this behavior than it was before and less attractive to sleep in than it was before. Doesn't mean it's easier, right? Making it make it easy is the next step, right? That's a different a different stage, but it does make it more attractive in your mind. So uh, that's an example of how to do that. Awesome. I'm going to keep things moving because I want to get through these two, and then I have so many other questions. And time is the the finite resource that none of us can get more of. So James, let's let's cruise in to make it easy and make it satisfying. Now you've already spoken to make it easy a fair amount in some of the things you've said, but the chapter. You entitled the chapter for Make It Easy, The Secret to Self-Control. So maybe you could start with just a thought or two about self-control and easiness. Well, uh, this also comes back a little bit to the environment design stuff that we've been discussing. There are a group of studies, I mentioned some of them in the book, that basically show there's not too much difference between people who exhibit high self-control and those who exhibit low self-control, aside from one factor, which is that those who exhibit high self-control tend to be tempted less frequently. So in other words, they're in environments that don't require as much self-control. And uh, so you can, you know, some examples, like if you're trying to stick to a new diet, don't follow a bunch of food bloggers on Instagram, right? If you're trying to curtail your spending on electronics, don't read all the latest tech review blogs. Like you're constantly being triggered to do the thing that you're trying to avoid. So reducing exposure to temptations, whether that's unsubscribing from emails, unfollowing people, whatever it is, um, increases the odds that you'll be able to follow through. It makes it easier to uh, stick with the behavior that you want to perform. You know, 10,000 or more times in my life, I've said a prayer that includes, a well-known prayer that includes, lead us not into temptation. And it seems to me, James, that you're in part saying, while we could look to divine beings to help us in that way, a lot of it comes down to environment design. And thinking about our own role, I think you speak to this very directly. We have a huge amount of control, self-control over what we're choosing to be tempted by or not. In a sense, it's kind of a prayer to yourself, like don't lead myself into temptation. You know, it's like, how can I, what choices can I take to structure the environment so that I increase the odds that I'm seeing productive things and not seeing unproductive things? Mm. Um, one final thought to add to this kind of third law, this idea of making it easy. Uh, one of the strategies you mentioned David Allen earlier, and I kind of did a little twist on his two minute rule for habit change. And I think that's a great way. If you're just looking for what's a simple way for me to make a habit easy, it's, I would recommend the two minute rule. And it basically just says, take whatever habit you're trying to build 
and scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And, you know, sometimes people resist that a little bit because they're like, okay, I get what you're saying, but like, I also know I actually want to do the workout. I'm not just trying to take my mat out every day. So is this some kind of like mental trick sort of thing? And I like the story of, there's this guy named Mitch, a reader of mine, who he ended up losing over a hundred pounds. And for the first six weeks that he went to the gym, he had a rule for himself where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get get in his car, drive to the gym, get out, <laughs> do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds silly. You're like, obviously, this is not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But if you take a step back, what you realize is he was mastering the art of showing up, right? He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And that, I think, is a much deeper truth about habits that people often overlook, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? It has to become the standard in your life before you can worry about optimizing or scaling it up. And so uh, the two-minute rule kind of helps you do that and helps make it easier to standardize and to master the other showing up and make those habits easy. Mm, wonderful. All right, let's keep moving here, James. Make it satisfying. Of course, the fourth law of behavior change. You're speaking to the role of dopamine uh, in part in, in that chapter. Maybe you could talk us through dopamine in our brains and then in this law of behavior change, how it works. Well, so the uh, first I should just say about dopamine, dopamine plays a very important role in habit formation. I discussed in the book in more detail. It is not the only brain chemical involved in the process. So I think sometimes it gets overstated a little bit because there's a lot of other things going on as well. Uh, but it definitely plays an important role. And one of the things that happens is that the first time you experience something, so for example, the first time you take a bite of a pancake, you get this spike of dopamine. And it's a signaling process for your brain where it says, hey, that was enjoyable. You should repeat that again in the future. And this is, this is what the fourth law of behavior change is based around, which is this idea that you need some signal of pleasure, of enjoyment, of joy, of satisfaction. You need some, some type of positive emotion to cement the new habit in your mind. Because if it's just a neutral experience or it's not really that enjoyable, then your brain is kind of like, why would I do that again? Like it didn't seem worth remembering. And so uh, there are a variety of ways you can do this. One way that you can practice this kind of fourth law of behavior change of making it satisfying is to practice the style of the habit that is most enjoyable to you. Like in the case of exercise, not everybody needs to be a bodybuilder or train, do strength training. Maybe you find rock climbing enjoyable or cycling or hiking or whatever it is. Do the form of the habit that's most enjoyable to you. Uh, if you're trying to build a reading habit, if you love romance novels or fantasy books or whatever, like read what's exciting to you in the beginning. Once the habit's established, then it, sure, it's easy to toss in a nonfiction book or something different or whatever it is. You know, like in my case, I love reading nonfiction because it feels like it has a practical application in my life. So for me, that's really enjoyable. But whatever it is for you, um, focus on the most satisfying or enjoyable form of the habit, and that helps cement it. And then you've got a lot of options for expanding down the road. Really well put. Let me just summarize then the four laws of behavior change. James Clear just talked us through the make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy and make it satisfying. And James, a little later, you talk about the cardinal rule. And like most cardinal things, it, it may feel very natural and normal to us, but we need to be reminded of the cardinal things and the eternal verities from time to time. So you write very simply, what is rewarded is repeated. What is punished is avoided. Yeah. And a couple pages after that, I make a slight adjustment to it as well, which is what is immediately rewarded gets repeated and what is immediately punished gets avoided. And it's really that speed of feeling the cost and the consequence of a bad habit or feeling the reward and the benefit of mm. good behavior that's really important. And so, uh, you know, when I mention like choosing the form of a habit that you like, that's because you feel that emotion right then in the moment. Um, one of the downsides of good habits is that the greatest returns are often delayed. This is, this is actually the hallmark of any compounding process, right? Anybody who's associated with finance knows this, right? Like early on, you're at the shallow end of the curve. You don't hit the hockey stick growth until years later. And habits are, they're not exactly like that, but man, they feel like that a lot of the time. You know, all the effort you put in up front, you're waiting for those delayed rewards to accrue. And so um, 
for that reason, it often becomes hard to stick with good habits because you don't have much of a signal in the moment. And so uh, another part of this fourth law of making it satisfying and of sticking to this cardinal rule of behavior change, what gets immediately rewarded gets repeated, what gets immediately punished gets avoided, mm. is finding ways, whether it's tracking your habits in the moment, so you got some little signal of visual progress, oh, hey, I showed up today, I did the right thing, or choosing a form of the habit that's enjoyable to you, or adding some type of reward on top of doing the habit, oh, if you did the right thing, then you get this kind of benefit. Um, all of those are ways to get a little bit of signal now while I'm still waiting for those long-term rewards to show up. Well, you've got tens of thousands of investors hearing you right now. And these are people who understand that the only term that counts in investing, not trading, is the long-term. So we are very familiar with the idea, as you say, of aiming to be great in 10 years. This is one of your top 10 tweets of last mm -hmm. year. Aim to be great in 10 years. Build health habits today that lead to a great body in 10 years. Build social habits today that lead to great relationships in 10 years, build learning habits today that lead to great knowledge in 10 years. We certainly could add build investing habits today that lead to a great portfolio in 10 years, which is really the only way to make a portfolio great. So this is very natural for fellow fools who are hearing you right now. You know, James, I want to talk some about social media. I think you're doing a great job on social media. You've got a quarter of a million followers on Twitter. That's all that I check or use. I'm not on Facebook or anything. So I see you there. I, I don't mean the numbers, though. What you actually do through social media, it seems to me you've boiled a lot of your work down to maybe the best insights or the best lines, and you, you put them out through social media. And each time I see one of your tweets, I'm like, that is a great insight. So to me, your signal-to-noise ratio out there for at James Clear on Twitter, one of the highest that I see, you compiled your top 10 tweets of 2019. I just rocked one with the aim to be great in 10 years. But I want to give another example and just have you speak to it, James. One of your other top 10 tweets last year, Real Wealth. Again, very relevant to Rule Breaker Investing. Real Wealth is not about money. Real Wealth is not having to go to meetings, not having to spend time with jerks, not being locked into status games, not feeling like you have to say yes, not worrying about others claiming your time and energy. You conclude Real Wealth is about freedom so there's a couple of different things going on here uh, one thank you for saying that about twitter I, and just social media in general I, I do try to make a very high signal very low noise and i sort of view because of what I'm, I'm doing in other areas of my business like writing articles or writing books i kind of view social media as a testing ground for ideas so i'm able to you know iterate kind of quickly let me let me try this little idea like the, the one that you just read about wealth is you know not getting locked into status games and it's about freedom and not necessarily money. Although of course money obviously can provide a lot of freedom. Um, the, that could be a whole article on status, right? On how status blinds us on how status kind of leads us astray on why we tend to focus on status signaling rather than things that may pay off more for us in the long run. But I just wanted to test the idea a little bit. And so I, I can't write that whole article in 280 characters, but I can like condense it into a tweet and see how does this land with people? And so it gives me a chance to iterate a little bit. But um, so in that sense, I kind of view social media very helpful for what I do elsewhere. But uh, as far as like growing a following or, you know, like it's all, it, it's crazy how often <laughs> this is the case, but it's really like build a great product. Um, and so, you know, if uh, Elon Musk has talked about that with Tesla, like he wanted to build the best product when he came up with that car, something completely new. It looks like a race car, but it also is totally electric. Like, um, and so it was really that product focus that made people salivate and want it and place all these orders. And a lot of time, for some reason, with online marketing, people get this misconception where it's like, well, what tactics are you using? You know, like, how are you growing your following or whatever? And it's like, ultimately, the only tactic is really provide great value. That, that is the tactic. And other stuff can be useful too. It's not necessarily that like marketing strategy never has a place, but um, every great marketing strategy is easier if you're sharing something valuable, if you're doing great work. And so uh, the first thing that I always try to do is just to write the best sentence possible. I think Naval Ravikant, who also has a great uh, Twitter feed, he said something like, uh, I don't know if it's a Hemingway quote or something, but it's like, just write one true sentence. And I think about that sometimes when I'm writing. It's like, I, I just want to write one trend, the one sentence that strikes the reader as true, that resonates with you and feels like, yeah, that's valuable. I need to think about that and remind myself more. Um, and the final thing I'll add to this is 
I'm often writing for myself. You know, like I, I they all basically every tweet in my feed is a reminder to me to try <laughs> to stay on track and, and do that. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, but those are just a couple of thoughts there. And I think ultimately it really does come back to providing as much value as you can. Hmm. All right. So from a few thoughts about social media, thank you for that, James. Let's briefly go to my social creatures question. So this one ultimately comes from Anna Filipovich Windsor, who was the person here at The Fool, our Motley Fool employee, who was the first who told me about your book and inspired, oh, wow. me, to, inspired me to read it. So naturally, I asked Anna for her best question for you. And I think it relates to how we're such social creatures. So first, let me quote in chapter nine of your book, you say the role of family and friends in shaping your habits that's actually the title of the chapter, but you remind us how much we influence each other. You say things like, you know, if you're surrounded by fit people, you're more likely to consider working out to be a common habit. And if it's jazz lovers, you're more likely to play some jazz every day. But now, James, that so many of us find ourselves arguably cooped up with these family and friends during this unusual time, Anna asks, and I quote, what's your best advice for creating new habits while living with other people, whether it's your partner, kids, roommates, etc. Oftentimes, you want to create the space to help you start better habits. But if someone else interrupts you and your schedule, how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a great question, and it might be uh, a little bit of a unique challenge this time. Um, first, I should say, so chapter nine discusses some of this in detail, as you mentioned, and I knew it was important enough to write a chapter about it. But this is one topic that, since Atomic Habits has been published, that I think is even more important than I realized that that the social environment plays such a it has such a strong pull. It's like this uh, social norms are like this gravity that pull on all of our behaviors, and we don't even really talk about it that much. We don't even really realize it that much, but it is around us constantly. Like you, um, you move into a new neighborhood and you see that your neighbors are trimming their lawns and uh, trimming the lawn and, you know, like cutting the hedges and stuff. And you're like, oh, we need to get some landscaping done or I need to mow the lawn. And partially you mow the lawn because it feels good to have a clean lawn, but mostly you don't want to be the one to be judged by your other neighbors. And so it's that social expectation that gets you to stick to that habit for 30 years or however long you live there. We, we wish that we could have that level of consistency with our other habits, right? Um, and Too so true. I think the lesson there, the, the takeaway is whenever possible, you want to join a group, join a tribe where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. And if it's the normal behavior in that group, then you're going to feel a strong pull to stick to that habit. We talked about making it attractive. It's going to be very attractive to stick with those behaviors because that's what other people are doing. It's what feels normal. So um, they help you fit in. They help give you a sense of belonging. So the, just to earmark that, to say that I think it is a very important force in our habits. Um, to, to honest question, which I think is a, a great one. My first thought was, well, as much as possible, you need to dedicate a space to where that habit happens. And that a lot of that has not happened for people if they're working from home for the first time. I remember this when I was starting my business, I was working out of my apartment and it was like, well, is the kitchen table the place where I answer emails or is this the place where I eat dinner? Is the couch the place where I work on this article or is it the place where I watch Netflix with my wife? Like what, there's this blending of context and that makes it hard to stick to new behaviors. So as much as possible, have a habit assigned to a location. If you can manage it, it's best for it to be a location or a chair or something that you don't usually sit in that is not already tied to another behavior. You want like as much of a blank slate where it's like, this has now become the reading chair or this has now become the workout corner or whatever. Um, so dedicating that space is one piece. Now, of course, you know, people are like, well, I live in New York City and I'm, you know, my apartment's the size of a phone booth. What am I supposed to do? So there is, there is some difficulty with that. And her point about inter people interrupting or your kids coming in or whatever, like that, you know, it's a reality that everyone's dealing with right now. So I think there needs to be some conversation about that with everybody else to try to get on the same page. One thing that you can say is, look, I'm not asking you to do this with me, right? Like you don't, you, if you're not interested, that's fine, but please don't sabotage it. Basically, you know, it's like, you don't, we don't all have to want the same thing, but when I'm doing this, it's important to me. And so all I'm asking is you can support by making sure that you don't uh, interrupt it, even if you're not there, like actually supporting and doing it with me. 
Really well put. And thank you again to Anna for turning us all on through this podcast to Atomic Habits. So thank you, James. Well, you know, I have like five more questions, but I think we have about five more minutes. So all right, let's do let, it. Let's enter the lightning round phase of this. So uh, this is this. I, you know, I'd love to hear more than a minute, but let's just go with a minute for each of these. James, here we go. First one is basically COVID-19. I think we have to speak to it, but I didn't want to lead off with it. I know it's top of mind for so many people. Any suggested habits or advice in a minute or less around this unusual time? Um, One, if you're, so whenever the environment changes in a big way, behavior changes in a big way. And so a lot of people are changing their environment by sheltering sheltering in place or working from home. So one thing that you can do is if you're going to build a new routine, for example, a home workout routine, Try to build it at a time or place uh, in your day where you'll be still be able to stick to it when you go back to your old pattern. So, for example, if you build a home workout routine at like at around lunch, well, that's kind of tough because once you start going back to the office, you're not going to be at home for lunch anymore. But if you build it at, you know, you get up and you get out of bed and it's the first thing you do. Well, now once you go back to work, you can do it to start your day off again and then you can go on with your commute. So try to find a space where your new habits that you want to stick to. Uh, can continue to live on once uh, COVID is over. And then uh, the other one is just to try to get outside as much as you can, you know, like get some fresh air. You obviously will still want to be separated, but being outside, I think is, is very healthy and having some kind of separation when you're inside so much, uh, it will probably be good for both mental and physical health. Mm, great. All right. You wrote a great book in 2018, Atomic Habits. Sounds like you're working on another manuscript now, but in between, I'm wondering, you know, what have you since concluded that changes anything you may have written in Atomic Habits or represents new thinking? I realize you pointed out the importance of social just minutes ago, but what else? Yeah, that's probably the biggest one is the influence of the social environment. And I think if I could unpack that more in like a new chapter or something, I, I would add that and possibly also as, as part of it. Um, the influence of status and status seeking, status signaling on our behavior. A lot of the choices and behaviors we make each day are signals to the people around us that, hey, I belong or I get it or look at the way that I'm representing myself or whatever. So um, that that's definitely a big motivator for habits and behavior. Uh, so social environment is one. And then the other one is probably, I guess, what I would broadly call timing. Um, so I almost wrote a chapter at, at like the 11th hour as I was getting ready to finish the manuscript, the publisher's waiting for it. I wrote a chapter on timing and how to find the right time of day to insert a new habit. And, uh, you know, I was just scrambling at like 3 a.m. trying to get it in and I stepped back and read it and I was like, this is terrible. It's not nearly as good as the rest of it. So I just need to stop. But I still think that idea holds some water that yeah. there is. You know, you don't, if you're trying to build a meditation habit and your six-year-old is running around the kitchen table in the morning, the morning is not a good time for you to build that habit. So uh, looking for the right place for habits to live, I think it's also a good one. Yeah. And Dan Pink wrote a pretty good book about that entitled When, uh, which we talked about on this podcast uh, months back. All right, James, next one. You've spoken to this. I think you were an entrepreneur before you were a writer. So a minute about your business and what are you learning from it? Yeah, I, uh, I actually, in a lot of ways, identify more as an entrepreneur than as a writer. Uh, it wasn't really until the book came out and I like had to admit that I was an author who physically <laughs> existed uh, that I thought about it that way. So I care a lot about conversion rates, uh, revenue, expenses, profit, all that stuff, growth rates, marketing, etc. I, I really like it. It's, it's fun for me. Um, so in my particular business, I try to run very lean. So I, we have a small team, uh, I have one full-time staff member. We're hiring a second right now. I tend to hire very slowly. I probably hire a year or two later than I should. Um, I have eight or nine people who touch my business in various ways. So, you know, agents, publisher, marketing team, et cetera, speaking bureau, blah, blah, blah. Um, and my philosophy is that I try to keep expenses as low as possible, try to maximize profit and margin. Uh, there's a great book called How to Double Your Profits in uh, Six Months, I think is what the title is. Wow. And it's basically a list of like 75 things that you can do to cut expenses <laughs> and to raise revenue. And it's literally like a checklist. And it, it, was, it only takes like an hour to read. And it was, I thought it was so good that I listened to it twice in a row. First time I just listened to it. Second time I wrote down like all the things that we could do. Wow. And uh, so now every year, uh, once a year, we go through all of our expenses and apply a lot of those thinking. Uh, yeah. thinking and stuff. So great. 
I, I try to attack my goals from both ends. Um, and so in the case of business, that means, you know, we're both cost cutting and we're doing revenue growth. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I, I love all that stuff. And I realized it, I made the mistake of not even introducing what your business is, James. Can you give us the 30-second elevator pitch? So uh, jamesclear.com is the home of all of it. Uh, obviously, Atomic Habits is kind of the most well-known thing right now, but uh, the backbone of the business is really my email newsletter. So we have about 700,000 people on the, the email newsletter now. That goes out each week. Um, and... Uh, Books are part of it. Speaking is part of it. We have an online course. Um, and then we're working on a podcast right now. So Great. there are a couple different arms to the business. And I, I plan to, I really like books as a, as a product. Um, speaking more to the business side of things, I like stuff that one has limited downside and unlimited upside. And the, the book could just, you know, people can keep selling and selling and selling. Forever. Yeah, right. And I don't have to, to do much. The publisher takes care of that. Two, I like things that have a long duration for success. So habits are a topic that were relevant 30 years ago and 300 years ago, and hopefully they'll be relevant 300 years from now. And so that gives us a long timeline for things to potentially go well. You know, if it doesn't take off right away, maybe it'll, you know, we can find a different way to frame it and it'll work well in a couple of years. So um, I like things that, that have those kind of qualities where they're sort of timeless, they're sort of universal, and they've got this unbounded upside. And I think that books, particularly about nonfiction topics that that are uh, evergreen, um, are a, a good a good fit for that. Wonderful. All right. Well, if we've gotten one minute on James Clear, the entrepreneur, how about James Clear, the investor? I kind of have to ask this question on Rule Breaker Investing, James. But what's your own approach to investing? Do you have some habits here? Yeah. Um, so I certainly do not claim to be an expert here, but um, I do have a couple principles. Um, so. First, uh, I am a big fan of Margin of Safety. I like the book Margin of Safety that Seth Klarman wrote. Uh, I thought it was really good. And um, so I, I tend to have like a good cash buffer. Um, and I am very happy that I have that now, given the situation. <laughs> but um, I, I like that idea. I like that Warren Buffett has some quote where it's something like, cash is like oxygen. You know, when things are going well, it's easy to just be like, oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But when you really need it, it's the only thing that matters. And um, so I adhere to, to that philosophy. Um, as far as stock investing goes, I'm super boring, uh, Vanguard style, like lowest cost possible mutual fund and just, uh, you know, make contributions, take advantage of tax advantage funds as much as possible, et cetera, max out, you know, 401k, staff, all that stuff. Great. Um, so my strategy there is pretty simple. Um, I, I do have some uh, bond exposure, but I because I have uh, such a cash buffer, I don't worry as much about that. Um, I tend to be mostly in VTSAX if I'm investing through through Vanguard stuff. Uh -huh. um, and then I have a little bit of I, I want that accounts for that and real estate mostly in my case just our our main property or main home. Um, yeah. uh, that accounts for like let's call it. 80 to 90% of, of the investment portfolio. But then I do have this like 10 to 20% that's sort of like, I just want exposure to other, other stuff. So, um, you know, I don't, the other thing, this is something that I've only come to realize a little more fully recently, but talking about investing is very hard because people have such different timelines. You know, like what makes sense for my parents is very different than what makes sense for me because I've got such a longer timeline. Ahead yep. of me. So, um, I have some exposure in like Bitcoin, for example, because I'm like, you know what? It's a like relatively cheap bet right now to see what will happen over the next 50 years, because I could potentially wait 50 years for that to do well. And so I like things like that, that again, have possibly unbounded upside um, and a long timeline for potential payoff. And so I want to use like 10 to 20 percent of the portfolio for things like that. I haven't done much startup investing because I'm not convinced that I have an edge there that I can do it well. But uh, I'm interested enough in it that maybe I'll pursue it in the future. But for now, I think keeping it boring and just cash, Vanguard, real estate, bonds, that's, that's good for me to let it ride. That's tremendous, James. I had no idea what the state of you as an investor is. But I'm not surprised to hear how thoughtful you are about it, rocking names like Klarman, Buffett, etc. Do you own any individual stocks? No, I don't pick anything individually. Oh. <laughs> one. I don't, one. Here's my problem with it. I'm not necessarily against it in theory. Um, and this is something I went to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting a couple years ago, and I kind of you're around a lot of these money managers or people who are picking stocks, et cetera. 
And um, my takeaway was, yeah, there are people who can do it quite well. The problem is I am not going to be, I'm going to be a hobbyist and I am competing against people who are doing it full time. <laughs> and I don't trust myself to be good enough. That I think you're like lying to yourself if you think you can do something for two hours a day and beat other smart people who are doing it for 10 hours a day. And um, so I'm like, no, I'm just going to keep it simple and I'm going to focus on growing my business. And that's where my like leverage is at. All right, great. Well, thank you. And you've been so generous with your time and insights, James. Not surprising, because I suspected after enjoying your book so much that you're a person of real character. And I think we've all heard that over the last hour. Let me ask you in conclusion. So at the end of your book, there is a conclusion. It's entitled The Secret to Rules That Last. And I'm going to quote you. You say, success is not a goal to reach or a finish line to cross. It's a system to improve, an endless process to refine. In chapter one, you say, I said, if you're having trouble changing your habits, the problem isn't you. The problem is your system. Bad habits repeat themselves again and again, not because you don't want to change, but because you have the wrong system for change. James Clear, any concluding thoughts here for your debut on the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast? Um, yeah, so that idea, the idea of building a system of 1% improvements, um, that's one of the central ideas of Atomic Habits, that you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. And making these small habits, making these small improvements, trying to get 1% better each day, utilizing all the things that we've talked about, environment design, two-minute rule, you know, social expectations and norms, et cetera, et cetera. Those are, each of those strategies are like little things that you can layer into the system and kind of shift the weight of it so that it's moving you in a positive direction. And um, I think also in the conclusion of Atomic Habits, I say something like the holy grail of behavior change is not a single 1% improvement. It's a thousand of them. And that's really what we're talking about here. How can you, just like that word atomic, how can you take each one of these little changes, each one of these little atoms, these little 1% improvements, and put them together to build a larger structure, a larger system um, that inevitably leads you toward that desired outcome. And uh, that, I think, is one of the core messages of the book. And, and hopefully, uh, this conversation will help people achieve some of that. James Clear, full on. Thank you. Well, thanks again to James Clear. Thanks. I should also add thanks to Maggie Dorn here at The Motley Fool. Maggie is responsible for booking most of my top-level talent interviews over the years, those authors in August, people like James Clear even outside of August. So, Maggie, thanks for bringing James to all of us fools. And next week, well, it's time to pick some stocks. That's right. It's going to be a five-stock sampler coming at you on Rule Breaker Investing next week. Maybe James will want to buy one of these stocks. Who knows? It's going to be five stocks. And why wouldn't it? Five stocks for coronavirus next week on Rule Breaker Investing. In the meantime... Wash your darn hands and stay safe out there. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.